The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Well, this morning as we finish up this story, we're going to start in verse 27 of chapter 4. We get to... And this story, this conversation is now going to be uh, attached to and applied to the greater world around her. Up to this point, the only voices in the story have been Jesus and the woman. Well, now we get to see these voices start applying and proclaiming the message that they heard at the well to the people around them. And so what we're going to see is the amazing grace of Christ, how it impacts individuals, and then how those, in, how those individuals impact the world around them. So if you will, let's read the, 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 what's left of the story, verses, verses 27 through 45, and then we'll jump into looking at these details. It says this, Now then, just then, his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek? Or, Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and they were coming to him. Meanwhile, these disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So his disciples said to each other, uh, has anyone brought food to him? That Has anyone gotten here before us? And Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white with harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For, there, for here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, and he told me all that I ever did. So when the, so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe. We have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world." As we're wrapping up this story, we get to see the impact of this one conversation uh, on several different angles and lenses that, uh, as this encounter has happened. And there's a couple of different groups that are, that are impacted by this conversation. And so this morning, I want to look at those different groups. I, I want to not necessarily go verse by verse, but topic by topic rather, and look at these groups that were impacted by this conversation with the Samaritan woman and Jesus. And there's three groups, because every good sermon has three groups, every three points. The first group are Jesus' disciples. The second group is the town of Sychar, where this woman came from. And the third group is us. So buckle up. We're going to be front and center eventually. I want to look at Jesus' disciples. Look what it says. They, just then they came back in the middle of the conversation. Jesus is sitting by this well having this very intimate deep conversation with this woman and they come back from being into town gathering food or, or getting food for Jesus and they if you will stumble upon it. You know up to this point we've discussed how outsiders would view Jesus and this woman talking 
We've said it was a scandalous thing because no good Jewish man would ever speak to any Gentile woman and no good Jewish moral man would ever want to speak to a Gentile um, a scandalous woman. Uh, these disciples now get to demonstrate for us why this was scandalous. Look at the first word that describes this encounter. His disciples marveled that he was talking with a woman. This, this word is key here. But it's interesting how we can interpret this word. Because it means, to, in, in the Greek, to be extraordinarily impressed. Or it could mean disturbed by something. And how we translate it, whether it's impressed by something or disturbed by something, is really determined by the context. So when I first read this, you know, one way I could say, and as, as I'm thinking about um, how Jesus' disciples are going to look at this, they marvel, they're going to come back and go, this is amazing. Jesus is offering the gospel to a Gentile woman. They could be marveling because it's like, I've never seen this before. This is so cool. Or it could be taken in the exact opposite. They could be sitting there going, um, does he not know who this person is? I don't think he should be talking to them. Lord, what are you doing? Get away from her. It's a marvel out of disgust. Ugh. Jesus, that's a Samaritan woman who clearly has been rejected by her own people because she's here at noon. Get away from her. What are you doing? But regardless of either way, notice that his disciples did not ask him, Jesus, what's going on? You know, this is a side note. The gospel writer, John is more than likely a part of this cohort here. Like, he's one of the disciples that walked back and is marveling. I think we can assume that because they didn't ask these questions to the woman or to Jesus, but they thought about it. I mean, just imagine when, when Jesus then walked away at some point and they started to debrief this whole encounter. Because I'm sure that's exactly as these disciples were journeying with Jesus, they would see something and then they would have these sidebar conversations like, what did we just live through? What just happened there? Were you as uncomfortable with that situation as I was? There was this whole debrief and maybe, just maybe, this is where like Peter, James, and John start to think, we should really create a PR campaign and firm for Jesus because he's doing some stuff that I don't think he wants to do. There's a better way to handle it. Jesus, that's a Samaritan woman. As a good Jewish man, you should avoid having those type of relationships. But notice the two questions that they're asking in their own minds, with each other, not with Jesus. The first question is focused towards the Samaritan woman. The second question is focused towards Jesus. The first question, what do you seek? In college, I went to college at Moody Bible Institute, which is in downtown Chicago. One of the best things about Moody is it's in downtown Chicago. My dorm room looked at at the time Sears Tower. Now I think it's Wells Tower. And being in downtown Chicago, one of the things that we got used to was homeless individuals. Chicago has a big homeless population. And um, maybe this would be shocking to you. I can definitely put on like a really straight face and just walk past people and just blow people off. And as a college student living in the city, I got really good about looking at people walking and saying, do you have $5? Could you have food? Blah, 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 blah. And just totally blowing them off. And I can imagine that when the disciples came back and saw the Samaritan woman sitting by Jesus, their gut instinct was to approach this woman in the same way that I approach many of those homeless individuals. What do you want? 
Get away from, I don't have any food. Go away, you're disturbing our rabbi. What's happening? So when it says, what do you seek? It is very much like, what are you seeking here? Now get out of here. So that's the first question with these disciples. Why are you here? And then leave. But then there's Jesus' question. Why are you talking with her? Again, it goes back to that whole like PR thing. Like Jesus, okay, this public persona that you're trying to have here, maybe let's not associate with that. Why are you stopping and talking to this person that we would just assume you're going to walk past and blow off? Why, why are you dialoguing here? But they didn't ask either of these questions. And it seems from the story, they came back, they saw what went down, they were so stunned, they just sat there silently. It was at the end of the conversation, and this woman drops her stuff and runs towards town, which we're going to get to her response in a minute. But jump to verses 31 through 38. Because we then see the rest of the story with these disciples and Jesus as they're asking, what's going on here? They, they kind of get down to the point of why they left him. Okay, hey, we have food. That's why we went to Sychar. That's why we went to the town. Jesus, are you hungry? And Jesus is going, no, I, I don't want to eat right now. I have food that you, to eat that you do not know about. So his disciples goes, has somebody fed him? And then he, he states this statement. Jesus says this in 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say to me, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes that the fields are white with harvest. This statement, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to, and to accomplish his work, is a weighty statement. We're not going to go here, but I would recommend reading Hebrews 8. Uh, Hebrews 10, 8 through 13, you can go read that after the service. That, um, there's a, some really cool connections there. But what I think Jesus is pointing at here is actually Deuteronomy 8. This statement where Moses, at the end of his life, is writing the book of Deuteronomy. It's, it's, it's happening in the last few months of his life. And he is recounting all that the nation of Israel has gone through in the wilderness. And he's reminding of them of what the Lord has done. And he says this, this is 8 Two through three. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God had led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you keep his commandment or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger. Just think back to all these stories. They got out into the, mil into the middle of the wilderness. Water had run out. Their supplies had run out. They started to look at the Lord and go, have you brought us out here to die? Are you going to take care of us? Jesus, or God, there's no food over here. We should just go back to Egypt where it was better because it was the land uh, that had meat and not milk and honey. That was, uh, that was Canaan. There was, there was food back there. Are you just trying to kill us? And think about what God did. Every single day, manna fell from heaven. Every single day. For 40 years. Well, except the Sabbath. Six days a week. For 40 years, manna fell from heaven and God sustained them. So as it says, and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Essentially what this is, is they're going, where does this come from? That he might make known to you that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of our Lord. The manna in the Old Testament was a physical testimony that God will care for Israel. 
as they journeyed through life, as they journeyed through the messy middle of life, as they journeyed from uh, slavery in, in Egypt to the promised land in Israel every single day, they got a picture of God's sustaining power. But this manna was a shadow of something greater to come. They ate this manna that was a physical substance that physically sustained them, but it pointed to something that was greater than just the physical. It was a shadow of, of what was to come. And that shadow is one day I'm going to give you something that's not going to physically sustain you, but is going to spiritually sustain you. It's not just going to be for a day. It is going to be for a lifetime, for eternity. Is what Jesus is saying here in this section. Listen, I have come to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And what is the will of him? To give you an everlasting manna, to give you everlasting bread of life, to give you everlasting water that you can drink once and be eternally sustained. These disciples have made the exact same mistake that the Samaritan woman made and countless people will make in this gospel. They went to the physical. Jesus went to the spiritual. They thought, what food? We didn't give you food. When we left you, you had no food. No one else has come besides that woman. She didn't have food. Where did you get food? What food are you talking about? And Jesus says, listen, my food is to do the will of him. My food, the reason I came, what fills me is to offer the bread of life to whomever I come in contact with. This is why Jesus came, to offer the bread of life. But notice what he does in this section. He invites the disciples into the act of sharing this food. He invites the disciples into the act of harvesting God's spiritual harvest. Because he says this whole thing, look up, do you not see that yet in four months it is time for harvest? Look, I tell you, the fields are white for harvest. Already the one is reaping and receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. In an agricultural community as it was at the time, these disciples, even though most of them were fishermen, understood that harvest time was the most important time throughout the year. As stockpiles got low, as food diminished, they were waiting for the time when they could harvest and refill those supplies. You lived and died based upon harvest time. So when Jesus says it's harvest time, they're going, it's January. We're not harvesting until such and such date. That's four months away, Jesus. What are you talking about? Because very much when it was harvest time, all of life stopped. Like you would not go on vacation in the middle of harvest time. You would not go visit friends in the middle of harvest time. You would not travel during harvest time because harvest was the most important thing. It took precedent. Here Jesus is saying, it's not physical harvest time, but it is spiritual harvest time. And he is inviting the disciples into the joy of harvest. Because what would happen is when, when a, a farmer would plant, when it would sow seed and it would watch it grow and then come harvest, they would literally look at the stockpile that was created from harvest time and go, look at what we have been given. We can live for the next year. We can eat for the next year. That was a fantastic harvest. Now Jesus is saying, you didn't sow, but I'm going to let you reap 
You didn't plant, but I'm going to let you draw from the ground, from the spiritual ground, that which needs to come out. And what is that? Faith in Christ. Because as it says, already the one who reaps is receiving the wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. One so, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which you did not labor and others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Jesus is impressing upon them that there is laid out before them with the people that they are coming in contact with a harvest ripe for, um, ripe for the harvest. But it's a spiritual harvest. It's a, it's a spiritual reaping. You know what's interesting about this section of, you know, one sows and another reaps and, and um, one, you're reaping what you have not, have not labored for and yet you're, you're laboring for others. I think of the illustration with parents and at times even pastors. Parents, think about all of the nuggets of wisdom that you've tried to impress upon your kids. All of those spiritual um, conversations that you've had or just life on life conversations that you have. It's better if you do this. It's wiser if, if you do that or don't do this or don't do that. And then, and you've had a hundred conversations with your kid about it. And then some unsuspecting what happens often in the church small group leader comes along and looks at your kid in the face and says, hey, you shouldn't do that. And light bulb goes off. And they come home and go, dad, mom, they said the wisest thing I've ever heard. I should clean up my room because my life will be better. And you're like, what am I telling you that thing? Pastors do the same thing. I, I, I get to stand up here and proclaim the glories of Christ every single week. And for some of you, it hits on, on deaf ears. And then you go and you hear a, a sermon somewhere else. Or you have a conversation with a friend or something else. comes, And the Spirit uses that to open your eyes. And you're like, oh my goodness, there's the glories of Christ. And it's for the first time. And you're like, I've been saying it. That's how the Lord works. The Lord not only sows, he also determines who is going to do the reaping. Who, is going, who he is going to use to call people to himself. So Jesus here is saying, listen, disciples, start reaping. Start sharing. Start, look out in front of you. There are people who need to hear about me. So that's the first group that we see in this passage. Now I want to focus in on the second group, the town of Sychar, the town that the Samaritan woman came from. Now, just remind you guys about a few things as we, before we jump into this. This is the town that rejected this woman. This is the town that let her go uh, draw water by herself in the middle of the day because no one wanted to be associated with her. This is the town that knew her sin and shame very well and would not let her move past that. This is the town that even being Gentiles would say, you're not good enough for us. Just hold that in your mind. Look at what happens with this woman. 28. So the woman left her water jar and went into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out from the town and they were coming to him. What's the first thing she did? 
she ran back to the people who rejected her. Real quickly, it's interesting that John says and left her watering jar. Here's what uh, Carson says about this. Many have suggested that for whatever reason, John um, detects a profound symbolism. In her eagerness to enjoy the new and living water, she abandons the old water jar, which speaks of abandonment of the old ceremonial forms of religion in favor, of, to, in favor for worship in spirit and truth. What really John's picking up here and Carson is pointing out is that she's willing to leave the one water jar that she came to, to fill her physical thirst. She leaves that there knowing, I, I've received the living water and have been filled by it and my spiritual thirst has been covered. But I just want to consider the whole tone of what's happening. The town rejected her. Her people cast her aside. She was known for being despised and rejected because of her marital status. And at the instance of meeting the Messiah... She ran back to them. We can read this story and go, yeah, of course, that's awesome. She gets it. Because we don't have the personal interactions. It's easy to think, yes, you should go run back and tell those people about Jesus because they need to hear about Jesus. Let's add some color to this situation. Let's put some faces to these stories. This is the woman that after her first divorce... However, that went down, whether it was because of her own sin or whether that was because her husband rejected her, lost neighbors because they were no longer willing to associate with somebody who had a, who had a divorce. This is the person that as she was going to the marketplace, slowly and slowly, she, she saw people peel away from her, take a wider berth as she's walking down because I would hate to be associated with that person. Think about her family. How many marriages do you think she had to go through before her own family rejected her? Her mom, her dad, her brothers, her sisters, her aunts, her uncles looked at her in the face and said, because of your situation, I'm unwilling to have a relationship with you. They're weighty stuff. Think about her ex-husband's. Who, let's just assume, are a part of this town. Her ex-husbands who looked at her and said, Yep, I'm the fourth husband because you've ruined the last three, so it's clearly you. Her ex-husbands who, for whatever reason, discarded her on the wayside, and she gets to carry that weight everywhere. The person who lives her life knowing, No one wants me. And it's not just a general no one wants me. It's my mom, my dad, my neighbors, my best friend, my you fill in the blank. The person closest to her, those people that she prized that were in her life, she goes, they no longer want me. If I went through that, the bitterness would be welling up inside of me. And when I found the most precious treasure on earth, you want to know what my flesh would say? Skip them, I'm gone. I'm not going to go back and tell them that because they don't deserve to know because they didn't love me when I was broken, despised. Why in the world should I love them when I found the best treasure on earth? I mean, it is, I would leave them. It was never 
a hint in her mind about where she's going. She ran back to the town that minutes ago rejected her. Think about this. This conversation with Jesus wasn't days, probably wasn't even hours. I mean, it was minutes. She walked out of town depressed. Once again, thinking, no one is journeying with me. I'm going to the well by myself. She walked out of town, seeing people avert their eyes from her because they don't want to have conversations. And an hour later, she's running back into town saying, come with me. I found the best treasure on earth. I found the Messiah. And how did she, what testimony did she use in finding it? She used her sin and shame as the illustration of I found the Messiah. Look what it says. Come see the man who told me all that I ever did. You know, these people rejected her. And I'm sure at some point it was, we don't talk about that anymore. Well, we don't associate with her. Why? Well, you know why. And now she's going... He told me about my five husbands. And he told me about the husband that I'm now, or the person I'm now living with who's not my husband. He told me all that I did and forgave me. She understood that even though she was despised and rejected and a sinner and she, there was no way around it, she understood that every single person in that town needed the same grace that she needed. There are some of you, of us, that unfortunately have far more in common with this woman than we hate to admit. Because we have felt the rejection of others because of our sin. Because we have to look in the mirror and say, I did that. And I know that sin lied to me and said it was going to be worth it, but I did that. There are some of us in this room that there is a testimony of destruction and then there is a testimony of God's amazing grace laid out upon our lives. And the thing that we get to do, those of us that I am sorry have to carry that burden, the thing that we get to do is look at that sin and shame and and garbage that's in our life and say, if he's willing to save this, he's willing to save you. Because here's what I've noticed. The person who has truly come to see themselves as the dirty, rotten sinner that this woman is and we all are, the person who comes to see themselves that way has a very easy time to go, yeah, we're all that. All of us are dead in our trespasses and sins. All of us have rejected God. All of us need the exact same salvation and grace that she gets. The person who's lost it all, because of, of course. And if he's willing to save me, he can definitely save you. There's other of us, though, that are unwilling to see ourselves as this woman. And so when this woman comes running into town and goes, look, this man gave me grace and he told me all that I want to do. They, they want to go, I'm, I'm good. I don't want my sin laid out in front of me like he laid your sin out in front of you. I'm good. Or I have no sin that I really have to run from. But this woman stands as a testimony to go, no, God is gracious and is willing to offer living water to anyone who comes to him. Instead of hiding in her shame, she's running around proclaiming the love of Christ from the rooftops. Instead of shunning the people who shunned her, she's openly inviting them to meet Jesus. 
She is the living illustration of Matthew 5. You don't hide a lamp under a basket. You shine it from the rooftops. And look what her testimony did to this town. This town was fundamentally turned on its head. The first town that had a transforming, that felt the transforming power of Jesus was a Gentile town. Because look what it says. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And what was her testimony? He told me all that I ever did and still loved me. And when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. A couple things in here. First, Jesus stayed with them for two days. Think back to as, as we were discussing the, the scandalous nature of Jesus sitting by the well and asking this Gentile woman for a drink and how that broke all of the religious traditions of the day because Jews don't share utensils with Gentiles because if you share utensils with Gentiles, then you're fellowshipping with them and you don't fellowship with sinners, all of that. Jesus and his disciples just stayed in a town of Gentiles for two days. I'm sorry, but you cannot tell me that he did not fellowship with sinners. He gets to this point where it's like, I'm sure his disciples are like, no, wait, hold up, wait a second. This was a day trip. We were halfway there. Why are we stopping? We're not supposed to stop here. This is not welcoming country. I'm, un, I'm uncomfortable. I mean, I'm sure his disciples are cringing because they're forced to live the, the radical nature of grace that Jesus has. So I'm sure they're like, I've never stayed in a Gentile town before and eaten at a Gentile restaurant. or I haven't experienced this type of fellowship. That's one side. But notice the reason why these Samaritans came to Jesus. They came to Jesus because she said, come and see the man who told me everything that I ever did. But notice why they stayed. It wasn't because of her. It was because of Jesus. They stayed because they believed in Jesus. She was but a messenger to God. She was just pointing them to the Savior. She didn't say, come to me and be like me. She said, listen, I can point you to the one who can save you. So often we fall into the trap of following the messengers of God instead of the Savior. We, we fall into the trap of listening to the human authority and not the divine authority. And I'm a pastor, so I'm like, I'm being hypocritical here. It's as a pastor, my job is not to say, come follow me. My job is to say, come follow Christ. I mean, maybe if Paul imitate me as I imitate Christ, but at the most as pastors, as believers, as disciples, we are heralds pointing people towards our savior. But here's the thing, it can be intimidating to live this radical life that this woman is living because we think, okay, if I start pointing people towards Christ, they're going to ask me questions that I don't know about. They're going to ask me things I can't answer. Notice this woman didn't have a crash course in evangelism before she went back to her town. She didn't sit with Jesus for the rest of the day and ask him all of the details about the spiritual life. She didn't get a, a, you know, a bullet point checklist when they ask this, you say this. No, her message was simple. 
I don't know all the answers, but here's what I do know. I was a sinner rejected and he came and loved me and offered me grace. That's it. Go find him. In our evangelism, as we're pointing people towards Christ, it is that simple. Let me tell you about my savior and we can learn about him together. So those are the first two groups. Jesus' disciples, the town of Sychar. The third group, us. You might think, uh, we're not a part of the story, Ryan. Why in the world are we talking about us? Consider, though, the thesis statement of the book. John wrote these things so that we might know and believe in Jesus. Each of these stories was divinely picked to take us on this journey so that we can meet Jesus, come to know Jesus. And so I have to think the gospel writer of John and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit specifically put this story in this place for us to learn something. So I've really been considering what do we need to learn? What do we need to walk away with? This story is a gift to us. Because... She shows us how we should respond to the grace of Christ. I have some application for us this morning. And I don't always have application points because application points are, um, they're, they're spirit driven, but man made at times and I can be off. But I, I just want to lay some things out in front of us. Okay. We're all going to be convicted over this. And I will show you where I'm convicted in here. When was the last time that you were so overwhelmed by God's grace in your life that you had to tell somebody about it? When was the last time that you were so overwhelmed by God's grace in your life that you told the person that you should despise or be bitter towards? When was the last time that you were willing to say the most precious thing in my life I have to share it with you. Here's, here's what I noticed, including myself. We are so willing to share the best parts of our life with other people. Whether it's um, a new book we are reading, whether it's a new workout plan we're following, whether it's a new job we have, whether it's a new strategy for this or blah, blah, blah. All of these good things in our life we, our lives are filled with us sharing about them. I mean, if you look at my Facebook feed at times and even at your Facebook feeds, I can normally tell what we are excited by. Rarely do I see Jesus as the thing which we are most excited by. But Jesus is the best thing that happened to any of us. Full stop. Everything else will dissatisfy us. Everything else will fail us. Everything else in our life is a lie if it says that it will ultimately satisfy us. Everything else. In life itself, the way stuff is presented to us is if you do this, if you believe this, if you take this, if you act in this way, if you go down this path, satisfaction's at the end. That's the best marketing stream, right? I mean, that is like, that's the whole thing. This is the best thing. This is the thing that you're that you're missing. But when we get to Jesus, that's actually the only thing that that truly applies to. 
He is the best thing that happened to any of us. It will ultimately satisfy. It will never fail. Why? Because it is completed not by us, but is completed by Christ. We can say that Christ will not fail you because when he says it is finished on the cross, he finished it. Full stop. So everything else is being finished and will fail. But Jesus goes, the life that you needed, I did. The death that was required, I had. The wrath that God had has been satisfied. That all has been done. So we get to say, listen, I'm going to tell you something that has been completed. Everything else is if you follow these 10 steps, then you can get to that point. But for my own self, I have a tendency of hiding that. Or bearing that down so it's the second, third, or fourth thing I say. I, I said, I'm going to indict myself here. So here's my personal application coming out of this story. As some of you know this personally. I don't lead with the fact that I'm a pastor in normal conversations. Because when I lead with the fact that I'm a pastor, the conversations change. Everyone buttons up. It's like, oh my goodness, he's the pastor's in the room. Like, the people at my gym, I try not to say I'm a pastor. If I golf with any of you guys, Nick knows this. He just made, now he just outs me every single time I go. He's like, I don't leave with the fact that I'm a pastor. I don't like that. Why? Because there could be this expectation of, oh, the holy man's here. Here's the problem. I get the easiest way to share Christ because I can go, I'm a pastor. Hey, can I tell you about Jesus? But I don't. Because I get it, it can be hard. But my thought is, if I truly understand the depth of my sin, the glory of the gospel, why, is it, why am I not the first one to go, let me tell you about Jesus. Yep, I'm in the job of telling people about Jesus. So that's where I have to apply this and work on it. My, my question is with you is, where, where do you need to work on it? Is there that neighbor that you have a great relationship with, but you just need to walk up to them and go, listen, I, I'm sorry that I have kept this from you, but I need to tell you about the best thing that's ever happened to me. And it's not the new grill that I bought or the new TV show that I'm watching. It's about my savior. Maybe it's that coworker that you've been walking around every single conversation and you just need to go, I, I, I just need to tell you about this. Maybe you're not gonna like it, but I just need to tell you, have, have you heard about Jesus and what his gospel says? I mean, and then some of you are like, but I don't have the answers. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to apply this. Maybe they're going to ask me questions like, yeah, I heard that Bible thing. There's a bunch of, of um, inconsistencies in it. Or, I mean, that was a made up. I mean, they're going to ask you these things. You're like, I don't have the answers for those. That's okay. Because the gospel is not based upon you having all the answers. Here's the thing. God is, God is, um, so big and so powerful and so awesome that no human will ever be able to plumb the depths of who God is and God's greatness in the gospel. We are going to spend eternity realizing and better understanding what happened for us to be there. So if you have to know everything in order for you to start having the conversation, you're never going to say anything. Even as a pastor, there's times people ask me, go, I, I don't know, let's figure it out together. Or... That's a great question. I don't have the answer to it because I'm not omniscient, all-knowing. But I've really been thinking about how this practically applies. Like, how does this go down in everyday life? And I think this is one of the applications here. Maybe the way that you start this conversation is by saying, hey, I see that you're struggling in life. 
I see that you're trying to put your finger on that thing that's going to satisfy. I see that you're trying to fill your life with stuff that's going to fill the void that was meant for God. Let me tell you about Jesus, but let me do something more than that. Let me invite you into the community of saints. Not because he declares you a saint, but let me invite you to church. And I don't mean just this church, though I'd love for you to invite them here, but let me invite you into the community of saints, the body of Christ. Why don't you come and experience and see firsthand what the gospel does in ordinary people's lives? Because that's what this is. Ordinary people who are overwhelmed by God's grace. The Samaritan woman was an ordinary person. She probably was not the only person in town who was rejected. Maybe she was the worst. Maybe she wasn't even the worst. But she was an ordinary person and she understood if God is willing to give me grace, he's willing to give them grace. So maybe the thing that we're missing in our lives as we're applying this is literally just saying, hey, he's given me grace. He'll give you grace. Come experience the place where that grace is put on full display. Because the church is God's evangelistic program for the world. That's who we are. This place is a place where we get to proclaim that Jesus is the answer, not all of the other answers that the world gives. You know, I, I, I say this in prayers and at times, six days a week the world throws at us through news, through books, through podcasts, the answer to life's problems is blank. And so if you meet that person on the street, maybe even some of you at times, they think the answer to the world's problems is fill in the blank. Once a week, on Sundays, we get to come and it can be publicly proclaimed to whoever stands in this pulpit that the answer is not that stuff. The answer is found in here. The answer is Christ. And so what we get to do is invite people to come See the person who told me everything I did and accepted me. But that can get messy. It can get messy because if we truly believe in the glorious grace of God, that he saved our dead hearts, it's going to cause us to share that grace indiscriminately to people that we are disgusted by. This past Friday, the, the elders got together and um, sat and, and talked about the church. We had a vision and planning meeting, just who are we, where are we going, how, how are we going to get there? And it was three hours of us glorying in the gospel and realizing, wow, he saved us. What can we do as a body to share that to whomever walks in our doors? And one of the things that came out of that meeting was that statement. If we truly believe the glorious grace of God that saved our dead hearts, how would we respond to the people who disgust us? Because so often church is that place where you walk in and you have to be able to fit the mold of church people in order to come in the doors, right? Like the only people who are willing to come in here are those who have cleaned up their life at least enough on the outside that they're acceptable for us to be here. Who is Jesus going to go to? He goes to the unacceptable, to the disgusting, to the people we never want to sit next to and says, you. I mean, it's the parable, now, now I'm just riffing, I should close this down, but it's the parable of, uh, um, 
uh, the dude who's having a feast and he invites all of the um, authorities and all of the rich people and all the people who we would think should be there, all the people who would have the right clothes to put on for a feast and for a celebration, and they all turn down the reception because they go, ugh, no, I have a better offer. And then what does that guy say? He sends his servants out into the sewers, into the alleys, into the homeless populations, into the dirty people and, and invites them in and gives them a rightful seat at the table. That's the church. It's not the people who've got the right clothes. It's the people who go, the only thing that I bring here is my sin. And God has supplied all of the grace, all of the mercy, all of the perfect life that I need. Just as we wrap up, I, I hope you can tell, I, this Samaritan woman um, hit me in ways I never anticipated. It really did. I, 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 as I've been judging these stories coming up, there's a couple of them that, that I, at, at the outset, I was like, I can't wait to preach this. The Samaritan woman was a total shock. And what I realized is that every church needs the Samaritan woman. And, every, and, and so I'm grateful that we have gotten to walk through that. As we wrap up and head towards communion for the morning, if, if you're here this morning and you're visiting with us and, and maybe, maybe you're the, that Samaritan woman and you're thinking, oh dear Lord, I hope they don't find out about what I did. Maybe you're here just, somebody invited you to church and, and you're doing that whole thing of checking it out, what's going on here. Let me explain what, what's about to happen. This communion, this Lord's Supper is a family meal. It's a family meal that none of us provide for ourselves. It's not a potluck family meal. It's a family meal that's given to us by Christ. And it's a family meal where we eat it together to corporately remind ourselves that our, the, the body that we look to and the blood that we need is not our own. It is found in Christ. But if you're here this morning and you are figuring things out, if you haven't placed your faith in Christ, if, if you can't look at Jesus and say, he's my savior, what I would ask is that you don't participate in this meal. Not because we want to necessarily exclude you, but because we don't want to confuse you. We don't eat this to save ourselves. We eat this to remind ourselves of what Christ has done in us. And so we just ask that you would let the plates pass you by. With that, I'll pray and we can take communion together. Father, thank you for your glorious gospel. Lord, I don't deserve it. None of us deserve it. Lord, if we all had our sins laid out before us here today, we would be shocked that you would save any of us. And at the same time, we would be shocked at how all of us struggle with, with sin inside of us. Father, it can be so easy for us to judge ourselves based upon the externals, the, the earthly things, the works of the works of our hands, it can be so easy to say that we've achieved a level of spiritual success because we have or have not fallen into any particular outward sin. But when we're honest, we are all the woman at the well. And Lord, thank you that you, you saved the woman at the well so that we might know today that none of us are beyond saving. Father, as we take communion Allow us to better understand and to be reminded by the depth of your grace. In your name, amen. 
Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.